triumph. Triumph is a term that comes from the grand procession of a Roman Empire victory parade. This thing is no small deal. It's four kilometers long. It is an astounding event. If you were lucky enough to be a Roman citizen at the time of a significant enough conquest, significant enough conquest being defined by having conquered over 5,000 troops, gained certain swaths of land and certain treasuries to be added back into the Roman Empire, and with all of those prereqs, then the conquering army with all of the spoils of war and the victor himself, the man of conquest, would then be ushered back into, into Rome with an amazing victory procession. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, if you look, look right here, this is a kind of a renaissance depiction of, of just such a thing. And let me zero in on even here this, this idea of the man of conquest here. Now, in a, in a victory procession such as this, in, in a triumphal procession, what happens is, is, is first you would have a, a, a massive, massive, it would be all of, all of Rome coming into the streets. Now, they don't come to meet the victor where he enters in the city, which would be at the Capitoline Hill in Rome. But, but rather, they rush out of the city, head, head well out of the city by, by a few kilometers, and out there, greet the army before they arrive into the city. They run out of the city, greet the city, greet the, the, the victors, and then bring them in. Now, what they would have seen with their eyes that they would have cherished was first, in this triumphal procession, the, and, and we have many, many depictions of this, uh, in, in relief in, in different Roman sculpture. But first would arrive the senators, regal, clad in white, noble, beginning the procession. Behind them, a starring band of trumpeters announcing to everyone that the event has occurred, come and join in the triumphal procession. After this starring band of trumpeters, cart after cart, Depicting the spoils of war. Now, Josephus, a, a Roman historian, wrote of some of these triumphal processions that these carts would have been three, four stories high. And some of them depicted full-on naval battles right there coming down through the streets of Rome. And it was actually even cautioned that because of these large carts and because of the battles being depicted, that people were often cautioned to, to stand back for fear that if a cart tipped, it would, would cause so much havoc and, and damage to life of just the spectators along the way. Uh, again, picture the grandest parade that you've ever seen. Uh, Rose Bowl Parade, 1998, Yankees through the Canyon of Heroes from Battery Park, through the ticker tape parade, uh, all of the pomp and circumstance that comes with that. Matter of fact, the word pomp comes from pampa, which is the, 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 the spectacle, which is this triumphal procession. But anyway, cart after cart. Now, on these carts would have been things that no eye had ever seen there in Italy. They, they would have seen perhaps giraffes and zebra. Uh, they would have seen alligators. They, they would have seen things that, that our eyes would marvel to say, who are we to have been born at such a time that our eyes would gaze on such a sight as is coming before us right now. 
And then after the, the, the carts and the treasures and the wonders would come two white bulls for sacrifice to Jupiter once they arrived at the, the center place there in Rome. And then shields showing the insignia of the enemy. Again, vanquished shields on display for all to just be losing their minds. I mean, just raucous celebration. You will make me lose my mind up in here, up in here as it all comes by. And, and then after that, the enemy leaders themselves in chains, defeated before the populace, SPQR, this, uh, uh, but before them, the, the, then, then the bodyguards and the generals, and then would come the golden chariot, pulled by four grand steeds, white war horses, four abreast, carrying the victor himself, he would have been up on a bit of a pedestal to look even more impressive as he rode through, man of victory, given the title of God that he would hold for the rest of his life. Only a few have ever been awarded that in, in the history of Rome. It happened to Julius Caesar, it happened to Augustus Caesar, it happened to Titus, it happened to Constantine, but he eschewed it as he had become a Christian by that point in time. But, but nonetheless, here, here, here he, he runs in with this amazing... Uh, spectacle and man of triumph with a crown of laurels above his head. Golden laurels depicting not only the victory, which is what a, what a laurel wreath would have been, a, a crown of laurels, but gold to show that he was also king. He wasn't actually king in some cases. He may have been the general, but he was king for that day. And all the titles given to him would be his for a lifetime. And all the while, as he comes in and, and the crowds are just adulation and wonder and praise, there would be a slave holding this crown above the victor's head. And the whole time, he would be whispering into his ear, Momento more, momento more, which is remember you are only mortal. Remember you are only mortal. Which imagine if that was all yours to, to hear as you went down the streets, what, what that would have entailed. And then after the golden chariot, the sons of the conqueror, and then the army itself. And, and even if you were just a member of the army, as you're part of this grand parade, maybe you've been in a parade, right? As a kid, you're in some parade and people are like clapping for you and you think you're kind of a big deal. You ain't nothing compared to if you were in that army, in that parade, and the adulation that would have been conferred upon you by the masses of adoration as, as they press in upon you, having had one of the few warranted victories of an of a actual triumphal procession. Now, why do I bring all of this up? Because it is unmistakable what we're going to see in the scriptures if we had residents in the first century of what it is that Jesus is doing as he enters into Jerusalem. So with that in mind, turn with me over to John chapter 12. We've just come off of the raising of Lazarus. It was a crossing the Rubicon moment, mixing metaphors here, of course, with Roman triumphs. But, but, but it was a moment where Jesus kind of marked himself out as a marked man. From here on in, the powers that be in Jerusalem 
are all conspiring to kill this guy as soon as he shows up. And all the while at the feast, what feast is it? This is Passover. This is Revolution Day. Passover is the day that God released the, the, the slaves of Israel from Egypt, overthrowing a superpower to be able to have their liberation, their great Independence Day. This is the 4th of July for all of Israel with a whole lot more thrown in, into it, right? And 4th of July, we just signed a piece of paper. Uh, on their Independence Day, wow, the fist of God humbled Pharaoh, vanquished him in the, in the Red Sea, and brought Israel into its own. I mean, that's a 4th of July that they had. And everybody's thinking revolution as well, and everybody's thinking Messiah, and everybody's thinking who is going to be the one that would deliver us and, and take our nation out from underneath this new superpower that is Rome. And again, the Jewish leaders, however, sensing that the people are getting excited about Jesus as perhaps that deliverer, are now thinking, we got to kill this dude. And we got to kill Lazarus too, because he's evidence of the power of this guy. Uh, and, and we've just come now from Jesus having a, a staging moment in Bethany and Bethpage. Now I'm going to kind of try to cause you to envision this. Now, there are, there are two mountains that we're going to consider. Two mountains we're going to consider. Do, do you see the two mountains here? All right. So this mountain is the Mount of Olives. This is the Kidron Valley, and this is the Temple Mount, where the, the temple would be, Herod's Temple. Today it's the Dome of the Rock, but, but that would have been Herod's Grand Temple, right? And over here, which is, which, what is this? Thank you very much, God, for paying attention to this thing I'm doing. But, but over on the backside of the Mount of Olives would have been Bethany and Bethpage, and that's where Jesus kind of stages himself for this coming into the city in triumph. And as he comes into the, into the city in triumph, he will be greeted, not as he arrives at the city, but look at what the people do. And, and according to Luke, it is a massive crowd that rushes out to greet him. And, and at the same time, because the city of Jerusalem for Passover is thronging with people. It's now up to a million people, most of the estimates. That's like 10 times the population. A million people pressing in to celebrate the Feast of Passover. At the same time, the Romans are now deploying their troops, as well as the governor himself, Pontius Pilate, to leave Caesarea and make their way into Jerusalem, into, into Herod's temple there in the Temple Mount, to prepare themselves for a bunch of... Uh, Jewish nation that is always looking for revolution. And so they have extra troops that are there and Pontius Pilate himself. Interestingly, Pontius Pilate would have arrived with the full contingent of the muscle of Rome, with all of their troops coming in through the West Gate into Jerusalem. He would have arrived on an impressive white war horse. He would have made a statement with his arrival. And at the exact same time as he's coming in, uh, six days prior to the Passover, uh, a week prior to the Passover, this is Palm Sunday, by the way. Um, it, it is it is the day with the Hosanna and the, 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 the palm branches, as we'll see in a moment. But just as Pilate is making his way in, this event over on this hill over here, over on the Mount of Olives on the backside, Jesus is getting ready to prepare his great procession. 
his triumphal procession. And here it is. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Well, I'm sorry, we, we read that just a little while. Verse 12, let's start there. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, the disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So my first point is the arrival of the king. And this arrival is meant to be an unmistakable picture of a triumphal procession. And this triumphal procession, it is not one coming towards the Capitoline Hill in Rome, for sure. It is not one with four war horses, a breast, and a golden chariot. It is Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Conqueror of Conquerors, Might of Might, coming not just on a donkey, but on a little colt of a donkey. Now, when I hear colt, don't think like, oh, Kentucky Derby, the colt or the filly, the impressive bloodlines of, of, of that thoroughbred. There is no thoroughbred in this little creature that Jesus is sitting on. And it's not just a donkey. It's a, it's a little baby boy donkey. And as a matter of fact, if you sat on it, it probably would be kind of embarrassing. Like your feet would probably be on the ground. Like you'd, be, you'd kind of like be walking along with it. As it's supposedly carrying you in. It's like, behold! Here he comes, you know, coming coming on in. That's what makes me so amazed at Jesus. To have incomparable power emptying himself for the great conquering that he's about to do through a cross. But yet the crowds, they're, they're they're not fooled by the meekness, by the donkey, by the the lack of pomp that attends to this procession. Because they have all come out for all the miracles that they have seen, it says. One after another, they have been amazed at Jesus. Even if they had been far-flung at different times, the beauty of this festival is that it brings all of Israel together. Whether these were people up in Capernaum or Bethsaida, Throughout the Galilee, they were seeing Jesus in an astounding moment. They're here as well. They've all been concentrated now along this triumphal procession. And what's interesting is they go out to meet him, if you notice. They go out to Bethany. They go out to the Mount of Olives. They go a couple kilometers outside the city, just as you do classically in a triumphal procession. And as they come, they begin to shout, but they do one other thing. 
that's rather significant is that they, and John is the only, uh, this is written in all four Gospels, John is the only Gospel that, that, that captures this, is that they begin to wave palm fronds, palm branches. And that, that's actually an incendiary activity that they were doing. Why? You say that? Well, no, isn't I? I used to do it when I was a kid, you know? We, we went to the church, we waved, and it was nice. What, 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 what's so, like, controversial about that? Well, again, you're not there. The Roman Empire had, soon after this period of time, and probably fomented during this period of time, that the palm being waved publicly was a public display of insurrection revolution. Why? Because 175 BC, when Simon Maccabeus had conquered, who, who were then the conquerors of Israel, the, the Greeks, uh, and, and that was Antiochus Epiphanes, who, who was the conqueror then, who was desecrating the temple. But he went in and, and brought brute force of, of God and of the Israelis that, that took him out, cleansed the temple, and the people in celebration waved palm branches. The palm branch became the de facto icon logo or symbol of the zealots, the Jewish party of the zealots, always looking for revolution. And so you can see how that would have developed into ultimately really carrying with it this, this kind of inciting uh, revolution to Rome outlawing it even to the point of crucifixion, if you did so, because you would then be stirring up revolution. So for these crowds to go out, they were doing something rather remarkable. Not just that, but they were also shouting at Jesus, who they knew had a, had a death sentence on him. As a matter of fact, it said at the end of verse 11, what do you think? Is he coming to the festival at all? Why were they asking that? Because they knew if he came, he would be arrested and put to death. Like, is he coming at all? Maybe he'll slip in like he did at the Feast of, of uh, Tabernacles that we saw six months earlier. Maybe he'll come in through. No, he doesn't, he doesn't come in the side door. He kicks in the door of the king. He enters in through the east gate. The east gate is the prophetic gate through which the Messiah would enter Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, today, if you go to Israel, we're going there next month. The, the, the gate is bricked up. It's some small-minded thinking by the Muslims who control the Temple Mount right now to think, oh, this will keep the Messiah out. The bricks are not going to do that. Right, but, 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 but that's how deeply ingrained it is that if you come in through that east gate, that is sending a signal to all of who you really are and what is really going down here. This would be an electric atmosphere as Jesus is coming over. And also, the Jews are also, the, the, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, those that are the power brokers of trying to maintain what, what, what sort of authority they have left in, in, uh, in Israel, are also on their guard for anyone who would be proponents of Jesus. We'll see later in this chapter that there are many who come to believe in Jesus but were afraid to publicly proclaim it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. But this crowd, massive crowd, not only are they, in a sense, giving up all their safety before Rome, right? Their, their very lives, 
But then also, they're giving up all their standing before Israel. That's a lot for this crowd to do. They're giving up their standing for fear that they would... No, they, they are basically saying, put me out of the synagogue. Put me out of the synagogue. I can't help but shout of what I have seen and heard and adore. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. No Pharisee hearing you shout that is going to be like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a good bit of zeal you have there. Can't wait to see you in synagogue next week. No, don't even think about synagogue next week. And that doesn't mean that you sit home and watch NFL. In, in the first century, that means that you are now a man of shame or a woman of shame attached to you forever. And you have a stigma with you, whereas you might as well leave the entire village because you no longer have a standing or a place in the synagogue. You have isolated yourself and marginalized you and your family every way, socially, economically, every way possible. You have done all of that. So for you to come out into the streets and to shout, and again, this has been a month where we're going to see passage after passage where people decide to empty themselves so that something greater can be filled. It's our very lives in Christ that we empty ourselves, we deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. This is so beautifully depicted, but of course, it seems like there's, there's no other logical conclusion. Jesus is here. What are you going to do? Just be like, ah, meh. Nice, nice, not thrilling, but nice. No, it's Jesus. He's changed our lives. He's touched our families. He's made a massive difference. He's loved us. He's cared for us. He's understood us. And he has power beyond compare and compassion in such a way that is reaching deep into our very hearts. And Jesus, it says in Luke's gospel, as he comes in and the crowds are so enthusiastic, rather than be caught up in all of the adulation, he looks to the Pharisees and he begins to weep. The same Jesus who was weeping at the tomb of Lazarus just a day earlier is now weeping again, even in the middle of this most astounding of all public displays. We see rather than Jesus soaking it in, weeping for those that are not going to be affected by the triumph that he is about to bring about. Psalm 118 is on the lips of everybody there. Well, for us, we're, you know, if we say a couple words of a song, you, you kind of get that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm probably referring to a whole lot more in that song. Or if I say a quote from a movie line, you probably realize, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm talking more about that. It's classic illusions, right? It's literary illusions, cultural illusions. But for us, unfortunately, we're not as adept at biblical illusions. And especially Psalms would have been very easy for any crowd to make a small reference, realizing that there's a whole lot unpacked when you make that small reference. And this small reference was to Psalm 118. But let me just show you some other things that are said in Psalm 118. Of course, uh, we, we've got the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. The this, this psalm begins. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. This seems to apply just as well to Jesus as it does to the crowds themselves. What can mere mortals do to us? Even as we see our king coming and we begin to shout 
of joy and victory. Verse 15. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done many mighty things. Now I would imagine the crowd not just shouting Hosanna, Hosanna, but also shouting, here's what he did for me. Here's what I heard him say. Here's how I heard him unravel uh, uh, the scriptures. Here's how I, I saw him give meaning to my life. Here's how he touched my soul. All of this would have been the electricity around the arrival of Jesus. And then even as applies to Jesus in that Psalm, verse 19, open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord as he's going right at the east gate. Further into that Psalm is where we find this right in the middle. Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. I mean, what I imagine being there, it's like a goosebump envisioning. If you could just jump into that crowd, that scene, that day, that arrival, that Jesus. But, but here's the interesting thing. This, this word of triumphal procession to, to lead in triumph, that word is used one other time. And it's interesting where it's used. It's in Colossians 2.15, where having canceled the written code against us, removed all of our debts is what it says right before this passage in 15. And it says, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he's made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. His triumph, his triumphal procession is very much integrated with a triumph upon a cross. Not upon a golden chariot, but upon a cross. It's a beautiful, beautiful sight. But it's not even the half of it. Like not even close. Because we don't just have the arrival of the king. We also anticipate the return of the king. Here, here's, here's why this is so incredible. Is that this event of Jesus is only pointing Towards the culmination of ultimate triumph. This is what 1 Thessalonians says about that event and about the event to come. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God. All the things that happen in a triumphal procession. And, and remember, in a triumphal procession, you don't wait for Jesus or the conquering king to come into the city. What do you do? You go out. Look at this triumphal procession. After that, oh, I'm sorry, it says, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's like the uber angels, or probably more appropriate, the lift. The lift angels will, will, will come and, and, and give us that, that uber. Uber will be probably, you know, not in a good place by then. But, <laughs> but the lift angels will, will bring us where? Outside the city. Outside. To meet him on the triumphal procession. The ultimate triumphal procession. We'll be caught together with him in the air. 
And so we will be with the Lord forever. Encourage one another with these words. That's going to be the triumphal procession of triumphal processions. That's the one that you want to take part in. That's the one you want to make sure that everything that he has done then will apply to you so that everything that will happen later will then be part of what you get to celebrate. Titus says something interesting. I love this passage in Titus 2. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. And that's a kind of a technical word of, of what happened in, in the Gospels. That offers salvation to all people. That initial appearing teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to kind of understand this a bit here. It's very important. And it's the way that we're to live our lives. We have at one end, the triumphal procession, the appearing of Jesus here in John 12. But then we then live our lives in a tension between that triumphal procession and the next. The next appearing. The next appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live as wonderfully blessed people in hopeful anticipation of what is to come because we know what has already come. We have already marveled at the first triumphal procession and the triumph by the cross. We've already seen what a grand God can do to empty himself, to love us and redeem us, give us meaning, fulfill our souls, change our lives, give us hope and a hope that does not disappoint and a hope that looks forward to. And, and this hope, this blessed hope. And again, if I, you know, I, I say this again and again, hope is not about who? Not about your football team. Right. I hope the Saints win today. I came ready to cheer them on. I hope the Redskins. Oh, well, not today. <laughs> right. <laughs> hope has no hedging in biblical language. It became that in English. So don't let it influence the way you read hope in the Bible. It doesn't have any like uncertainty. That blessed hope is zero uncertainty. It is guaranteed, to use a uh, saint's terminology. Right? Right? It is guaranteed. It is such a certainty of future events that it is joy-injecting, anxiety-abolishing, life-changing, so much so that you have such a clarity of what's coming our way that it changes with clarity the way that you live now. It makes your perseverance or your patience merely prudence. Because what else would you do knowing that this has happened and this is certainly coming our way? And when it does, how I want to be in that number. Wow. When, when, when that happens to us. Now, now, here's a kind of an interesting thing. It has to do with church, church architecture. Uh, when Jesus comes again, it says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west... So will be the coming, the parousia, the, 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 the grand procession of the Son of Man. Now, about 15 years ago, I was up at Jamestown as they were doing some renovation, getting ready for the 400th anniversary of the settlement of Jamestown. One of the things that they were doing while I was up there 
is taking down the kind of reconfiguration that they made of the church in Jamestown. And I asked, why are they doing that? And they said, oh, we realized that all churches throughout all ages, even during this age in the 17th century, all churches were oriented. That is, that they were built along an east-west axis. So, but why, why is that? They, the the, the um, uh, park ranger didn't know. I, I knew. I'd studied that. I didn't then say, well, here's why. Because uh, everybody hates your guts when you do that and you're part of not the, the park ranger. But, but, but <laughs> nonetheless... But here's why, because I'm now actually up here talking, so I, I should be able to say that. Right, but here's why, is that all church architecture was meant to take the people of God and align them, orient them, bring them together when they come together in the name of Jesus and have... Every, I don't know if I'm pointing east or not. Maybe it's this way. Maybe we got it right in this building. Who knows? But, uh, but, but pointing, let's say east. Right? That, that, you think that's east? Okay, so let, let's say we're, we're but, but it, it's to take us all and point us east. Why? Because we're meant to live always anticipating, is he coming? Is he coming? Is he coming? Like that's, that's the way we're meant to live our lives. Every day as we wake up, it could, and it could be five minutes from now, five days from now, that the sky opens up as a scroll and the voice shall resound the trump shall resound. The, 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 the Lord shall descend. It is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul? You need to ask yourself that. Has everything that he's done back here in the first appearing had the intended effect? Have you been brought to a place of beautiful repentance? Have you been reborn by that sacrifice that he has done? Is it now your life that you live with this new sensibility waiting for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is that really what now energizes you, gets you up every day, and excites you as you anticipate, yeah, I didn't get to shout on the Mount of Olives, but oh my goodness, I'm going to lose it like no one's ever lost it when the next arrival of Jesus comes, and I'm part of that triumphal procession. Because all of those folks are going to be in it too. We're all going to be caught up together. We're all going to come up into the air. Come down together with him. You're going to, John the Baptist. Come, I'm, I'm shouting next to John the Baptist. How cool is that? There's Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh my, right? I mean, it's going to be beyond imagination. But beyond all of that, there's Jesus. Oh my goodness, there's Jesus. And here he is. And we're with him. And we're coming in. Oh my goodness. What's, what's more important than that? What, what should enthu cause enthusiasm more than that? And just to conclude, the, the last thing to observe here is the shouts of the crowd. It, it says they went out to meet him shouting. Many, because they had heard he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. And they continued to spread the word, shouting joyfully all the while. You know, and, and, and for us, wow. What are we holding back for? That crowd put it all on the line. Here's the palm branch. Go ahead, Rome. Take my name down. Here's my shout of acclamation. Here's me proclaiming Jesus as the king. Synagogue president. Go ahead. Kick me out. I got nothing. I got nothing left. But you know what I do have? I have Jesus. Amen. 
And nothing's going to stop me from filling Jerusalem with Jesus. What stops you from filling Norfolk, filling Hampton Roads with Jesus? And I know that you've thought, you know what? I bet if I just drop my inhibitions, drop my concern for my image, drop the way that middle schoolers, high schoolers, shipmates, coworkers, neighbors think of me, if I could just drop this carefully curated image that I've created for myself, I could just get past, wow, unshackled what I could do for Jesus. You know you've had that thought. Unshackled, what could you do for Jesus? What difference could you really make? Well, let's do it this week. Let's not be people who read passages like this or astounded at the insight that John gives us and, and what it points towards only to have some head knowledge. Because guess what? If all we do is listen to it and then shrink back to, to, to being those that are afraid to proclaim Jesus for, for fear of what others would think of us, we'll read that in the very next passage, by the way, then we are a Pharisee factory. We're gaining insight to do nothing with it. Only to have our hearts hardened just a little bit more. Jesus says, do what they preach, but, but don't do what they do. God forbid that he would ever say that about us. But how about that he would look at us, seeing our cheers, seeing our unfiltered, raw, unvarnished adoration, spilling into the streets, spilling over into conversations, intentionally arranged so that we could really have opportunity to let people know Jesus. My goodness, you know you can make a massive difference. This is the week that we thought, as we looked at our month, this is the week. This is the week to imitate what the Holy Spirit has put before us. And and this is the week for us to have this final charge. Drop our inhibitions and make Jesus known everywhere. Every one of us. Make Jesus known everywhere. Let this be a week where more than any other, you touch more people, affect more people, invite more people. Arrange with more people than ever before. Ever before. And, and it's not about, oh, let me just like go to... No, just drop your inhibitions and, and Jesus comes through. That's all. Just drop your inhibitions and all the brakes are off. And off we go to be able to do this great and very thing. Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us, Lord. Yes, you have. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And blessed are those that know and obey and proclaim. Amen. Amen.